Our New Testament reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, on page 155 in the New Testament. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Listen here to God's word. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Justine, for reading so clearly for us. Let's keep that passage of God's word open in front of us as we bow our heads and ask for God's help in prayer. Father, our prayer today is that you would give us ears to hear your word and hearts that rejoice afresh in the glory of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us. We pray, Father, that you would change our minds, that we might be those who better glorify the Lord Jesus in our lives because we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. The story is told of an old church. Outside the door as you walked in was a text from Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. It was an old church, and over the years, the ivy began to grow. And that word, crucified, was obscured. So as you arrived, you were meted by another greeting, which was a new verse. We preach Christ but any gardener will tell you that ivy is a very aggressive plant, and it wasn't long before the third word had disappeared. We preach. Ivy actually is very aggressive. It shows no mercy. And in a short period of time, the fourth word had also disappeared. And so the motto for the church as you walked in was, we. But ivy shows no mercy. And it wasn't long before that word, we, was gone, and the church finally closed its door. It's a quaint story, yet behind it is a deadly serious point. What happens to a denomination that seeks to honor Christ but leaves out the cross? What happens to a denomination or a congregation, uh, to a nation or, or a Christian that erases the offense of the cross. Remove the offense of the cross, the crucified Christ from your gospel, and replace it with another Jesus, a spiritual Christ, a, a resurrection Christ, a socialist Christ, a social action Christ, and it won't be long until there's nothing left at all. We are reduced as a church to we, no gospel, no vision, no mission, a declining demographic in an increasingly self-centered, self-absorbed, self-opinionated, self-congratulating religious club. Now, personally speaking, I want to give thanks to God that this church 
is nowhere near that. Praise God. But around our country, states, and neighborhoods, there are plenty of churches that have gone soft on the cross, that have erased the offense of the cross, and therefore they have become churches that really aren't churches at all, self-centered, not about Christ and His death, but about me and my needs. And as we seek to make sense of Christmas in this, our second sermon in the series of Advents, what we're going to do is to go back to this extraordinary text, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, where Paul sets the cross before us in one of the most remarkable texts of Scripture. The context in verse 3 is he's imploring this congregation in Philippi to do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In verse 4, he's asking that each of them should look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. In verse 14, he longs that this church, um, Emmanuel Philippi, if you like, should do all things without grumbling. There's a risk that this church in Philippi should splinter into factions, silos, different agendas, a congregation that has forgotten about self-sacrifice. So the heart of the appeal comes in verse 2, complete my joy and have this attitude. But what is the attitudes of a really Christian church? What does it mean to be Christ Church Philippi? And the answer comes in verse 5. As Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is the Christian mind? What does it mean to honor Christ with a Christ-like attitude? And Paul tells us in verse 5 to 11, as he tells us Christ's story, a breathtaking text that takes us through the great sweep of eternity past into eternity future, as he takes us from Jesus' pre-existence through to his incarnation, through to his atoning death on the cross, and then from the cross to the resurrection, from the resurrection to the ascension, from the ascension to the return of Jesus at the end of the age. The gospel, as I was explaining to our confirmation class just now, is a great the. And the descent of Jesus as he moves from the highest place in heaven to the lowest place in the universe, the cross, then results in the second part of the V as he's exalted from the highest place to the lowest place, from the lowest place to the very highest honor in heaven forever. More than likely, this section was a creed in the early church or a hymn that was sung but it's a section that takes us to Jesus' attitude. In fact, it's one of the only places in Scripture where we enter into the very mind of Jesus. So there's a health warning this morning. We really are on holy ground as we enter into the minds of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we see the story of salvation from His vantage points. In this great gospel V, which forms really two points that we need to make this morning, and they're on our sheets if you're taking notes to think about it during the week. Because the first part of that arc down is humiliation, which is the attitude of the Son 
verses six to eight, to the Father. For this creed, this hymn, starts with an extraordinary point in verse six, as Paul announces that although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The first part of verse 6 is one of the strongest statements of divinity in the New Testament, that he existed in the form of God's. So it's not that Jesus is a photocopy of God the Father. It's not that Jesus is an impressionistic painting of God the Father. The Father looks roughly like this. He's not a cartoon of the Father or even an ambassador from the Father. The point is that Jesus the Son is eternally on a par with God. He is co-equal with God. He is 100% really, truly, fully, completely God. That means that the Jesus of Nazareth that we celebrate being born this Christmas is our creator. He's our sustainer. Sometimes people ask, why, why should I become a Christian? And the answer is beginning to form. It is because the Jesus we call upon you to worship is the one who made the universe. You only breathe your next breath by permission of Him. He made you. He holds your life and death in His hands. He is your creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge. This is an amazing text because Paul is describing a man who walked the planets and walked Palestine just about 30 years earlier than when Paul is writing. It's like us talking about a man who walked around in Pennsylvania in 1998. But it makes perfect sense of Jesus' claims. If anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And it makes perfect sense of his life as he walked on the water and calmed the storm, as he healed the sick and brought back the dead to life. Arius was a third century Egyptian priest who 300 years after Jesus' life argued for the divinity of the Father over and against the Son in a way that denied the divinity of Jesus. The way in which he spread this heresy that Jesus was really man but not God's was through writing hymns, which spread like wildfire through the ancient world. Asterix, warning, be careful what we sing. And we give thanks to God for Jeff Pike because what we're singing is theologically true. But it was left to Athanasius to refute him at great cost. And this led to the Nicene Creed, which was penned to refute Arius. And every word of that sentence proclaims the full divinity of Jesus. Light from light, very gods of very gods, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. But Arianism lives on today. Uh, you'll find it in the teaching of Mormons, of JWs, and in Islam, where Jesus is not God's, but he is a holy prophet, a great figure 
of moral teaching from God's. But C.S. Lewis puts it like this, there is no halfway house, no parallel in any other religion. If you'd gone to Buddha and you'd asked him, are you the son of Brahma, he would have responded to you, my son, you are in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you the son of Zeus, he would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and said, are you and Allah one, he would first have rent his clothes and then cut off your head. Come to Jesus and say, are you the son of God? And his response is, why have you been so slow to believe? But how is this godness expressed by Jesus? Paul tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We hear that word grasp and we think of a toddler trying to grasp a toy or a cookie out of reach. Or we think of a politician trying to grasp office. So Hillary Clinton wants to grasp the Oval Office. For us, that word grasp is about grabbing onto something that we don't have. But here, the word grasp is about exploiting something you do already have. The point is that Jesus, who is eternally God's, chose to express his godness without exploiting his status for himself. He didn't turn it to his own advantage. He didn't serve his own ends. He didn't seek personal gain. Rather, he surrendered himself to the will of the Father and to the needs of the world. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. This is actually one of the most difficult verses of the New Testament to exegete and preach on. He emptied himself. But it's not that he emptied himself of his godness. He is eternally the Son of God, God the Son. But this emptying is to do with the fact that he ceased to long for his own interests, but rather he allowed the full godness of his status to be obscured and veiled at the incarnation. And our carols reflect this. We'll be singing of it later as Nancy plays the organ for us. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Born as a baby, what was his weight? Eight pounds, two ounces? of vulnerable humanity, it didn't look like the God the Creator, which is why his life and ministry was mocked and missed and rejected. For the Greeks, for God to come into the world, it would be as a wise Socrates or a Plato, the, the wisest of philosophers. For the Romans, if God was to come, it would be the God of war and victory. Apache helicopters, hellfire missiles, infantry battalions, tank divisions. But when God the Son leaves the throne room of heaven, He doesn't land on Air Force One. He doesn't land to a guard of honor. There's no red carpet, no cavalcade, no ten-gun salutes, no media pack waiting, no state banquets. 
The mode of his manifestation is one of complete obscurity. He enters in the embryo of a teenage girl in obscure Palestine, born into an obscure Far Eastern colony of the Roman Empire. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a bond servant. And that phrase, the bond servants, takes us to the very lowest of the low in Greco-Roman society. It literally is bond slave, the lowest possible class in the ancient world. The dynamic equivalent today would be the asylum seeker, scum, chattel, no citizenship, no rights, no status, no freedom, no recognition. And Jesus pours all of his godness into that. Here is the slave gods. So we're all used to seeing the mighty fall, the president ousted from office, President Trump or Carter ousted after just one term. We've all seen the coup d'etat in African states where there's some kind of revolution. We've all read our history books, 1789, the storming of the Bastille, the guillotine being erected, and the beheading of the king. Or in Britain, we've all heard of Liz Truss, the shortest term in office ever. She was just prime minister for three months. In fact, the Brits do it as brutally as anyone else. It is awful. What happens when a prime minister leaves office is she goes as prime minister in a cavalcade to the palace to meet with the king. What then happens is she explains that she cannot lead the government or command the majority of the house. And at that very moment, the king relieves her of office. She enters in as prime minister and she leaves as a member of the public. Do you know, she actually has to find her own transportation home. She enters into the palace through the front door with her security detail. She has to leave through the back door and find her own way home, stripped of power. No more access to the nuclear codes, not allowed back into Downing Street. Now, just a member of the public, like you or me. So was it like that for Jesus? Was he stripped of office in heaven like that? against his will. Now, the point about this humiliation is it's self-imposed. There is no gun to Jesus' head. It's a voluntary humiliation. It's a path he chooses. Verse 7, he emptied himself. Verse 8, he humbled himself. This is the mark of his life. This is the Jesus who wraps the towel around his waist and chooses to wash the disciples' feet. This is the Jesus who chooses to be the bond slave as he takes on the filthiest job for the lowest of the low. This is the great descent of Jesus. He leaves the throne room of heaven to become a man, the first descent. Then he goes from man to being bond slave, the second terrifying humiliation and descent. But it goes down even further to death as God's dies. But it doesn't end there. For the death we're talking about is death, says Paul, even on a cross. And our problem 
as a congregation. And my problem as a preacher is we cannot possibly understand in 2022 here the full horror and the full gory and the full gruesomeness and shame and scandal of that word's cross. Our word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. It was reserved for the worst type of category A offender, death on a cross. The cross was so offensive, it could not even be mentioned in polite Roman society. The emperor Cicero wrote, let the word cross never come before the ears or eyes of any Roman. It was so scandalous, the word cross, that when the judge was passing sentence in the court, death on a cross, a coded formula was used because you couldn't mention it in polite Roman society. But it's not just the electric chair or the hangman's noose. No, the, the, for the Jew, the cross was not only the place of ultimate terror, but the place of the curse. For cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The cross was the place of rock-bottom humiliation, degradation, horror, and shame. And so, Jesus goes from the highest place in the universe, the throne room of heaven, to the lowest place in the universe, to death, even death on a cross. Which is why religious humanity cannot accept this. For the Jew, it's scandalous. For the Muslim, it's too much to bear. So in the Quran, in Surah 4, we read, they killed him not, nor crucified him. For surely they killed him not, but Allah raised him to himself. But the purpose of this humiliation is very clear. That word bond servant, that word their servant, is an echo in verse 6 of our first reading this morning from Isaiah 53, where the Lord's servant sacrifices himself as a willing self-offering to face God's wrath at sin. For the way that Jesus expresses his godness is by expending himself on the cross as he serves the Father's will to meet our greatest needs, which is why the hymn writers can't quite contain themselves as they seek to explain this extraordinary theology in song. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the floods. For the prince of life, our ransom, shed his blood. This is not just an expression of love, therefore. It is the ultimate definition of love. What is love? Well, the love equation goes like this. If you need it and I have it, Love gives it, whatever the cost. The love equation is if you need it and I have it, love gives it, whatever the cost. So what did Jesus have but the perfect righteousness of God? What did we need but propitiation and atonement and punishment for our sin as the Father's anger is appraised? Jesus gives it. He meets our greatest need. He rescues us from the judgment of God. He puts us right with God, the God who loves us, by giving his righteousness and taking our penalty. And this descent, this great descent from the highest place to the lowest place is proof positive that he is God's and that God is love. 
Jesus does the God-like thing and uses His Godness to serve and save. For here is the mind of Christ as He looked at Himself and the Father and us. For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven and was made man. Aren't we thankful for Jesus' birth and death for us? It's the first point, humiliation, the attitude of the Father to the Son. But in this great gospel V, it doesn't end there because there's a pivot verse in this hymn, this song, verse 9, as we move from the descent to the ascent, vindication, the attitude of the Father to the Son. Now, the place of highest power in our world probably is the Oval Office, POTUS. It's why everybody wants to become president. It is the place of supreme power. It is the place of greatest honor. In actual fact, in England, the highest possible honor is an order of chivalry called the Order of the Garter. It was founded by Edward III in 1348. It's a personal gift of the monarch, and it's reserved mainly for her or his children or grandchildren, and only 24 people in England can become members of the Order of the Garter. It's a real honor. But it's peanuts, isn't it, compared to the honor that the Father lavishes on the Son. As in verse 9, Paul now shifts from the attitude of Jesus to the Father to the attitude of the Father to Jesus. And it begins with the word therefore because it is connected. It is because of that great descent that we now see this V, this great ascent, as we go down to the lowest place and then up to the highest place. This verse, verse 9 to 11, is like a massive thunderclap from heaven. God's divine vindication. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a breathtaking picture full of color, full of excitement and glory because the Father has given to Jesus three great honors. In verse 9a, he's raised to the highest place. In verse 9b, he's given the highest name. And in verse 10, he receives the highest praise. The highest place, verse 9a. And Paul's problem is that he doesn't have vocabulary available to himself in the Greek to fully explain the extent of this honor. So he makes up a new word. He breaks all the rules of Greek grammar. The pedants amongst us would be shocked. He combines two words. He glues them together to create a new word that doesn't exist. In verse 9, it is not that God highly exalted him, but that God hyper-exalted him. Actually, what God has done is to uber-exalt him, because this exaltation is like nothing else in the universe. 
He raised Jesus from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. And in Hebrews 4 and verse 14, we read that Jesus passed through the heavens, and he's now seated as Lord and King at the right hand of God in glory. All of this is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, for as Jesus now sits enthroned at God's right hand, he's triumphed over all of his enemies. This is Christus Victor, the cosmic victorious Christ. He's conquered over every enemy, Satan's sin and death, and now sits not buried in some Palestinian grave, but ruling from the throne room of the universe, the cosmic king over the entire planet's As we said a week ago, there isn't an inch of ground over which this King Jesus doesn't say, mine. The highest place. Second, the highest name. For Paul writes that Jesus has been given the highest name, verse 9b. So what's the highest name in the world? Is it Biden or Putin? Is it it Xi? Is it, is it Beckham? Uh, what's the highest name in the universe? Kim Jong-un? The highest name in our world, I don't know, the highest name in the universe is God's name, Yahweh, the Lord's. His personal name given to Moses at the burning bush. In Isaiah 42 verse 8, God says, I am Yahweh and that is my name. The name Yahweh is God's self-revelation of himself, the promise-making, promise-keeping God of covenants. The name was to be honored, hallowed be your name. The name was so holy that it couldn't be written. The scribes had to use a coded formula, which is why we have Lord in capital in the Old Testaments. The name could be never taken in vain. God will never hold them guiltless that take my name in vain. The name which is the highest name is God's name, Yahweh, is the highest possible name in the universe, and God the Father has given that name to Jesus of Nazareth, His only Son, the highest place, the highest name, which leads last, verse 10, to the highest praise. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what Paul does in verse 10 is he takes us to three categories of humanity, three categories in our universe. There are those who are on the earth, there are those who are in heaven, and there are those who are under the earth. In heaven, that's the realm of the spiritual, as there are heavenly beings and angels and even demons. On the earth, that's those who are alive today, all 5.2 billion of us. And those under the earth are the dead, those who are physically dead but will be raised. So, whether we're talking about what's going on up in the spiritual realm of angels and demons or whether we're talking about what's going on around the planet today, or 5.2 billion of us, or whether we're talking about history and the cemetery and those under the earth or lost at sea, it doesn't really matter because every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ah, says the universalist, here it is, everybody will be saved. It doesn't matter what religion they're from. It doesn't matter whether they believe in Jesus or not. It's okay, we can live whichever way we want to. Every tongue will eventually confess Christian faith. And Jesus, we all are like anonymous Christians now without realizing it. Only it's not what Jesus says and it's not what Paul means. For the bowing that Paul is talking about here and the confessing, is either the confession of the Christian in salvation or it's the bowing and the confession of the rebel in final judgments. In a sense then, the message of Christmas, as we see this baby born to save us, is quite stark. In a sense, if you'll forgive me, the message of the gospel has a hard edge to it, doesn't it? In a sense, the message of the gospel is you can bow now to Jesus in salvation or choose in rebellion to bow to him in final judgment. But the one thing we've all got in common, saved or unsaved, forgiven or not forgiven, is that all 5.2 billion of us will bow, whether to Jesus as the Savior we own through His love and grace, His body and bloods, or bowing in final judgments, because this Jesus is God our Maker, and He will be God our Judge. And it's interesting as we finish, for Paul is taking this great hymn, this great carol or creed, and he's applying it in a way we wouldn't necessarily expect. Yes, there's a, an evangelistic edge as we must preach this gospel, maybe bring our friends to hear it tonight as it's explained in an attractive way in a carol service. There's a missional urgency. But actually, there's a congregational urgency. Because as we see this mind of Christ, what Paul is arguing for and pleading for in the life of these Philippians is that the whole pattern of their relationships, the whole pattern of their congregational life should reflect the attitude of Christ, which is not going around the world saying, what do I want? But actually going around the world and saying, what does everybody else need? Because the love equation is, if you need it, and I have it, love gives it. So this Christmas, as we see the mind of Christ, it is to shape us into 2023. I'm not allowed to go around church demanding what I want, wearing the crown, for the pattern of Christ's attitude is we surrender our crown to the crown of Christ for the good of others. And this attitude will be vindicated for in the topsy-turvy topography of the kingdom of God, the way up is down. For as I humble myself in the first arc of that V, this is the attitude the Father will vindicate in the life of the believer, just as in the life of Christ. So there can be no more silos 
in a congregation where I'll do my thing over here and you do your thing over there, and if they clash, my silo must win over yours. There can be no more rivalry in a congregation that reflects the mind of Christ, no more personal agendas. I want this now. We say, as we head down on that axis, down to death and humiliation, not what I want, but what honors the Father, what reflects the mind of Christ, and what's best for the interests of others. And by way of application, it might be that we all need to go away this week and reflect on some of the things that are most precious to us. We might need to say, I need to give up on that so that for the good of others, the proclamation of the gospel, I would reflect Christ to the glory of the Father, for in the topsy-turvy topography of the kingdom of God, the way up to glory is down into personal death. Let's pray. Found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We honor you, Lord Jesus, today. We exalt you for your attitude, for saving us, for your humiliation. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus, for securing our forgiveness through his humiliation. We ask that in all that is done, said and believed, we would reflect you in increasing Christ-likeness of character as we take on the attitude of Christ. Forgive us and empower us because we ask it for his namesake. Amen.